Alaska. Have you been there? Have you lived there? No, not been there, but thrown it in. Okay. Don't know what it looks like, but I think it's cool anyway. Great name. All right. Anybody else? Any other nominees to throw in there? California. Any Cal- any Cali fans here? Okay. We got a few folks that live there. Uh, some of you guys uh, grew up going on a lot of vacations. Um, you, uh, any, any of you guys actually go on an RV vacation with your family before? Any, any of you guys rough that? I, as for me in my house, I like showers and air conditioning and hotel rooms, right? I don't know about you guys. I'm not a camper. Any of you like to camp, right? Raise your hands. There's the freaks, okay? Uh, for me, I, I like uh, carpet and uh, things, you know, to be uh, cooled off. It's, I was at my dad's house over the weekend, Memorial Day, and just watching all the campers, uh, it reminded me of caveman days. You know what I mean? I was like, I bet that's what it looked like, you know? Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I, uh, I had the privilege of uh, being in ministry uh, at a young age and um, was a youth pastor when I was 18 years old. And uh, one of the things that we did often, and I've had the privilege of doing often, is travel a lot, take a lot of mission trips. I've been to North Carolina, South Dakota, Arizona, Colorado, uh, Virginia, uh, Kentucky, if you count that as a state. And uh, really, really just about all over the U.S. doing certain mission work. I've been to the Baja Peninsula of Mexico, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, Laos, and other international sites. And um, I've had a great opportunity and privilege to travel. I, I definitely count it as a blessing. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting, and, and some of you that have gone on um, mission trips or the like, you, you know that there's a consistent conversation that happens. Towards the end of the trip, the group gathers together. And without fail, I have heard a two consistent statements at the end of those mission experiences in my travels. And that's this. I have a lot and others don't have much, um, which, is, which is a very true statement. Um, I, on, in, when I was in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, I was on one of the most impoverished uh, hills in the entire world. 700,000 people live in a quarter of a square mile. And uh, we would travel up the hill with big bags of clothes on our back and distributing clothes. And sewage just runs down the hill. Very grotesque situation. So the realization in that sense is, I'm blessed. I have a lot and others don't. But the second thing was this, and without fail, every trip, it's way easier to be on mission when I'm away from home. It's way easier to be focused on living out the gospel when I'm not in my own context. And, um, and so you know how it goes. Everyone gets fired up, right? We're going to go home. We're going to charge hell with a water pistol. You know, everyone's getting really excited. And um, it's frustrating to me that then... Um, just consistently, it seems we come back, and within a few weeks, we're just kind of back in our normal rhythms. It's really, really bothersome to me that, that we, we're forced to make that statement that it's easier to do missions uh, away from home than in our own context. Is that troubling anyone else? And I think I've wrestled with all my years on why that is. Why is that the truth? Why is that a reality? Why is it easier to go to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, get super serious about God's call in my life, and then come home and get so back into my complacent rhythm so quickly. The amazing thing about the passage tonight is it's going to answer a lot of age-old questions for me. It's going to do it in a challenging way, and so if you haven't brought your seatbelt tonight, I would suggest putting it on. But more than that, I would say this. Um, it's easy to come in here in all of our different contexts of life and situations and not be in a vulnerable state. In other words, it's easy to come here with kind of the glazed-over eyes and not really concerned about what's happening. No matter where you're at in your faith, whether you believe or not, here's what I'm asking you tonight. Could you take a journey through the scripture with me in such a way that each of us could be super vulnerable and honest about where we're at? I'm asking you to be honest tonight. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions as we go through tonight, answering some and not answering all. And so what I would just ask as you sit there and as we journey through this text, uh, that we can wrestle with it together. 
And in the end, my hope and prayer is that we're going to answer some questions that I've been wrestling with for many years. So are you ready to go, my friends? Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We studied a strange text last week. Uh, for those of you that were here, I feel like we got through it and learned, uh, learned along the way. Um, but now we're in uh, chapter 4. That's right, all the way to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're good at math, you can see we have two chapters left, uh, chapter 4 and 5. It took us about eight months to get through the first three, so you do the quick math. Um, 1 Peter is a letter that's written to a group of people that, um, that are suffering. We keep reiterating this point, but I want to make something very clear. Something happens in chapter 4. If you grew up in the church like I did, 1 Peter chapter 4 is one of the pinnacle chapters in the New Testament as it pertains to suffering. So though we've been talking and preaching and teaching about suffering for many months, it's in this chapter that Peter will really nail down his point. He'll take all the things that he said now as precursors in the first three chapters and really hammer them home, if you will. So let's get going here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We're going to break this down much to work through by phrase. The first phrase, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Now the first uh, important piece of this is understanding the fact that Christ came in the flesh. You may think, well, of course. This is a highly debated topic. Was Jesus really fully man as he walked here on the earth. Well, Peter affirms what every other writer says. The the theological term, the doctrinal term, is incarnation. In other words, Jesus was in heaven with God the Father and was sent down, took on flesh and blood, real flesh and blood, was fully man and at the same time fully God. That piece is a mystery and hard to understand, but it's true. And so Christ, as he's walking on this earth, is walking in the flesh. People ask, did he eat? Of course he ate. Scripture records it. Did he drink? Of course he did. Did he get thirsty? Of course he did. He was in the flesh, fully man. Now why is that significant? It's significant because like Hebrews chapter 4 says, he had to come in the flesh to fully sympathize with those that he would save so that he truly could be, what Hebrews 4 says, the great high priest. Are you with me? Then Hebrews 4 could be written that he came, lived in the flesh, was tempted in every way, but Scripture says, yet remained without sin so that he could be our mediator, relating to us, in other words. So he came and suffered in the flesh. Suffered how? He was constantly ridiculed. He was shunned in his hometown. He was under constant threat of death. He, in the end of his life, was beaten, scourged, the flesh ripped off of just about every piece of his body, exposing bone, the crown of thorns dug into his skull. And the concept that some theologians who are uh, incorrect and heretical want to make is that he was not feeling any of it. It was God. So all the suffering was just a show. It was drama. It was an act 
to appear sympathetic of those that he was dying for. But that, like we believe as true Bible believers, has to be false. He suffered. Every bit of that he felt. And as he died and said the words, in is finished, he took the penalty for our sin. It's critical. I know it's often looked over. But even when, we were, even when we were studying 1 John, one of the theological viewpoints is Gnosticism. And Gnostics believe that Christ really didn't come in the flesh, and the whole letter of 1 John is written to combat that. So are we together that it was a God-man on a cross dying, feeling it, knowing it, feeling the pain? If not, then do you think that Christ would have been in the Garden of Gethsemane on his face, Pleading with God, is there any other way? But I know that it's not, so your will be done. Would that prayer have been prayed if it was just God? No, he was fully God, fully man in the flesh. And then we see this amazing word in your text. What's the next word? What's the next word? Come on. Arm yourselves, all right? Uh, This should get some of you guys excited, right? This is like militant, okay? So we think of guns and, all, you know, this is like the biblical conceal and carry here. You know what I mean? This is arm yourself. This is get the bazooka out. This puts us on the offensive instantaneously. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Well, listen, like the biblical writers do, they keep coming back to Christ. Why? Because he's the ultimate example. What I love here is we do, listen, we do not have to speculate. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Well, well what do you mean? We get to look at Christ, in his example, to understand what Peter's saying. You, you see what I'm saying? And a reminder, Peter was there. Heard the teachings, saw the miracles, was with Christ. So when he says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, he knows it because he saw it. And so I want to propose three different things here in the arming yourself as Christ goes so that we can better understand. The first thing is this. Christ's purpose was very, very clear. If we want to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, then we need to look at the fact that when Jesus came, his purpose was not ambiguous. It was crystal clear. Can I show you a few passages? That would be a yes at that point. All right. Luke 4 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's quoting the Old Testament. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does that to any of you seem any what ambiguous? No, it seems pretty clear. He goes on, though. Look at this. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's not just that Jesus is clear about his mission or his call, but he keeps articulating it over and over. Next slide. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost over and over and over. This is why I'm here. This is why I've come. You need to understand, everything is crystal clear. In Matthew 20, I love this, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ, the God-man, came to serve, not to be served. Unbelievable. Next slide. To really sum it up, John 6. For I've come down from heaven, pretty clear, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but listen, but raise it up in the last day. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
If you want to arm yourself with the same thinking of Christ so that you can better be prepared to suffer, then your purpose and your mission must be clear. My issue is that I feel like many of us are extremely gray in what our purpose and our mission is, and we'll get, that, we'll get to there here in a second. The second thing, Jesus' purpose was clear, but also his motive was pure. If you want to arm yourself with the same way of thinking of Christ, he's very clear, here's what I've come to do, and his motive is pure for doing it. Philippians 2 says this, and being found in human form, he what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility. This is where Christianity is differentiated from every other world religion. Its premise is that our God humbled himself to be exalted. Where every other world religion says, you're exalted to be exalted. You see the difference? I love following that kind of God who humbled himself, became obedient even to death on a cross. His purpose was clear. His motive was pure. And lastly, the goal was accomplished. He didn't come and say, I'm going to recover the sight to the blind, and then didn't do it. He did it. He didn't come and say, I'm going to release the prisoners from captivity. No, that happened too. He said, I came to seek and save what was lost. That happened. Some of you are here tonight. He he said, you know what? I'm going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. He rose from the dead. Everything that Christ set out to do, he did to the fullest extent. And so we sit back from all of this and say, so if we're to arm ourselves in the same way of Christ, how could we sum it up? We could sum it up in this way. Obedience. Obedience is what summed up the life of Christ here on the earth. Every which direction was obeying the call and mission and purpose of why the Father had sent the Son to the earth. Unbelievable stuff. Because here's what starts to happen as you read First Peter. You start to think that I'm to be looking around for suffering. Like, come on, bring on the suffering, right? Like, it must be clear. Like, we arm ourselves for suffering, so bring on the suffering. Let's go. Let's suffer. But the biblical principle is this. When you arm yourself with the same way of thinking as that as Christ, summed up by obedience, suffering will come. In other words, obedience comes before suffering, not suffering before obedience. You don't suffer and then obey. You obey and then you suffer. Are are we together on that? I'll explain more as we go on. Our disconnect with these three things is the fact that Jesus came and, listen, very clearly had a strategy, a purpose. Every decision that he made, everything that he was doing, every conversation he had, every question he asked, it all had incredible intentionality. And so I ask you tonight, how much of your life do you feel like is lived out of convenience versus driven by mission? How much of your life is lived out of convenience versus driven by mission? Can I ask you some more questions? Why do you go to the grocery store you go to? This is obviously rhetorical, right? You're like, shop and save, right? No. Why do you go to the grocery store you go to? If you were to give an answer for that question, what would you say? 
Why do you fill your car at a particular gas station? And I'm not talking about the times when you're down 94, almost empty, because you put two bucks in the last time, right? Like most of you do. How many of you are, are a full filler, right? Okay, like four of us, right? I'm the $5 guy, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'll see you again tonight, you know what I mean? Like, we'll be back here, right? Yeah. Why, why, do, you go to those, why do you go to those gas stations? Let me ask you this. Why, why, do you do, um, why do you drive the particular way you do to work or to school or whatever? Uh, why, why have you chosen your job in what field? Every decision of your life, if you were to go through today's decision and all of the things that it entertained, was it uh, driven by convenience or by mission? Um, things start to get pretty weighty around this time. Because we realize how much of our life is driven by this dangerous word convenience. A lot of people ask me why I go to the park so much. Um, first of all, I love it. I love taking my kids there. It's, it's fun, right? I love seeing Avery go down the slide and progress as she gets braver from the small to the medium to the large. But every day in my neighborhood that I go to the park, the chances that someone from St. Charles is at Blanchett Park is quite high. And the chances that they have children is also extremely high. And the chances that they live close to my neighborhood is also quite high. And so, you know what? I love to go to the park because when I go to the park and I wheel my kids up there and I'm starting to swing Dawson and Avery combo style, which, you know, now I have a third, so I'm, you know, going to have to figure that out. But guess who's standing right here? I can't count the number of people that I've met at the park. Because it's one thing to go to the park and, and like, keep your head down, right? Because we could do that, too. We could say, oh, yeah, well, let's go to the park and be missional. But it's a whole other thing to go to the park, and everything you do with your kids is even calculated. Why do I go to a particular area of the park first and then, and then the next place second? As I look up and as I walk up at the park, I'm gazing who's here. And you're like, dude, that's kind of creeperish. No. Well, maybe, right? <laughs> but, but I'm seeing, like, who, who's here? And you know, you know what started to happen? Hey, what's up, Bob? Good to see Hey, how are the kids? Hey, how are Avery and Dawson? They're, they're good. They're growing up. You start to get to know the same people. You start to see the same people. You start to build relationships. Listen, I've talked about hometown IGA, midtown IGA before. I love midtown IGA. And what you'll find about the small stores and the cities that you live in is the same people work there. And so when you go in the grocery store and I go in almost at the same time when I go in, the same people are working there. And you know what I do? I've built a relationship with Ann there. And so I purposefully go in the aisle of Ann and talk to Ann. Hey, Ann, how are the kids? I know you have four kids. How's the divorce going? I know you mentioned that to me last time. When we begin to shift everything we do away from convenience and toward mission, you start to realize how distanced we are now from the life of Christ. Seriously, if we were to ask each other, and again, I'm, I'm sharing two stories. Trust me. There are plenty of times I walk into Walmart with my head down, caring only about the soda that I got to get and the makeup I got to pick up for my wife. But if I would just for an unselfish second turn my eyes up, you know what I would see? People. Real people that I am called 
to love and to be on mission. I think there's this tendency to think that Jesus came and just lived flippantly and then all of a sudden died at the cross and it was this big heroic moment. Can I explain something to you? Here's the um, path from Galilee, which is where his ministry began, to Jerusalem. And there's this little town way over here called Jericho. I'm not sure if you're aware. Got to walk everywhere, okay? Ancient Mesopotamian times, right? You walk. When he is journeying to Jerusalem to die, he takes this jaunt over here to Jericho by foot. You know what happens in Jericho? It's where blind Bartimaeus was healed. It's where other conversations happen with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. On his way to Jerusalem, he's going out of his way. The life of Christ was not built on convenience. It was built and designed and strategized around mission. Every decision was calculated. Every understanding of his life was headed to one distinct purpose. And friends, I fear that most of us are just living throughout our day. Please, self, not worry about anyone else completely built on the premise of convenience. We're succumbing to the culture is what I'm saying. Everything in our culture is built towards convenience, and we're just saying, give me more. We're like opening up, just feed me, come on, give, make it easier for me. Instead of starting to go out of, our, out of our way, calculate decisions, and see every opportunity so we bought this pool, all right? And I, I joke because I say we got a pool uh, with my friends. And they're like, oh, cool, what kind of pool? It's about five foot in radius. Uh, got a big zebra slide, which takes up half the space, you know. But one of the things that I knew would happen in this pool, uh, by the way, we bought our house because, and though many of you guys have been to our house, we have like no backyard, and our backyard is our four neighbors' backyards, okay? You walk out of our deck, and I could have conversations with all of my neighbors, Right? It's like, hey, good to see you, good to see you, right? It's very, but we bought it because of that. Literally, I walked in the house, I was like, Heidi, look at this. And she's like, yeah, but the wood floors. I'm like, look at this, you know, this is awesome. And so we bought this pool because our next door neighbor over here, this little cute three-year-old named Josie, and our two neighborhood girls over here, cute, cute as a button, right? We knew that this would just, and so guess what happened? The second day we bought this pool, our neighbor's standing outside, and we got this pool, we're like, hey, no need for a pool pass here, right? Like, Come on over. And so for an hour, my neighbor sat on my deck, and we just talked as the girls played. Everything begins to become strategic, and I truly believe that God just opens your eyes to opportunities. Which bank do you go to? You go through the drive-thru? Pretty convenient, isn't it? I know you only got a couple minutes. Uh, at Bank of America here, down here, uh, there's a girl named Hollis. Okay, uh, there's a girl named Katie. Uh, one of the managers is named Bill. All right, and and I I go there all the time. Just even if I like have to get five bucks out of the ATM, right? And and I'll just go in, and pretty soon there, there's a girl here uh, coming to Matthias who cut my hair. Okay, like two and a half years ago, and ever since she's come to Matthias, because I walked in and I sat down. And trust me, there's been plenty of times where I've sat down in laziness and not asked a question. But on this particular day, I sat down in her chair, and we started talking, and she's been here ever since. How much of your life is built around convenience versus driven by mission? This is the life of Christ. His purpose was clear, his motive was pure, and the goal was accomplished. If you desire to arm yourself with the same way of thinking as that of Christ, 
then your life becomes strategic. Listen, you sit at home at night and you start to strategically plan out the next day. God, how can I be used tomorrow? Where do you want me to go? What restaurant should I eat at? Most of the restaurants I eat at, minus one, okay, the Chinese buffet, but most of the restaurants that I eat at, right, are, are extremely strategic, and we're building relationships with the waitresses, and they're getting to know us. Do you understand this difference? This is completely countercultural. And when this begins to happen, do you understand that suffering will come? We're going to get there here in a second. Can you just sit there for a second and wrestle with this? Even driving here, just built, developed out of convenience. That's why one of the reasons that I feel like sitting out on those mission trips, that people said that it was easier to be on mission away. Listen, because the mission became convenient. Because we were all there together with nothing else to do except be on mission. And that's a darn shame, isn't it? When, when mission internationally becomes convenient, and then when we come home and mission becomes inconvenient, and life takes over. So what does Peter say? He says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Look at this. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now we need to wrestle with this. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So, you want to arm yourself with the same way of thinking of that of of Christ? Okay. Your life then becomes strategic. It's mission. How how many of you guys grew up in your church and and the missionaries were on the bulletin board? How many of you guys, how many guys went to churches like that? Okay. Seriously? Okay. Well, in my church anyway, you walk in the door and the big bulletin board with the purple border, right, and they, you know, the big map, and there's arrows going everywhere, and there's a big sign on top, our missionaries, we support our missionaries. Do you see how much this has messed us up? We start celebrating the obedience of those who we perceive as hardcore because they sell everything and go to Burma. When if God is calling you in your job at this time with your family, why should we start celebrating levels of obedience? If he's called us to obey, then we should celebrate obedience, no matter whether it's in Burma or St. Charles. Are you with me? The problem is we don't celebrate obedience in St. Charles often because we know deep down inside we're really struggling to obey. I'm really not sure if I'm on mission. Don't feel like it a lot of times, you see? but it appears easy to see the place in Burma. So when you arm yourself with the same way of thinking as that of Christ, guess what? You will suffer. And what the Scripture says then is if you have suffered in the same way in the flesh, then you have ceased to sin. So you're like, okay, so X plus E equals perfection? Did I say X plus E? Is that a, right? No. Right? X plus Y or A plus B, whatever. No. The concept is this. The revelation of suffering, beginning with obedience, means that obeying Christ has superseded your selfish, sinful ways, and therefore, not perfection, but in that particular example, you have ceased to sin. Are you with me? You have elevated the glory of Christ, your missional call, above any convenience that you would lean to, and in that case, cease 
to sin. This gets really weighty here. Verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Let me ask you this. Do you think it's possible to waste time? Think about that question. Do you think it's possible to waste time? And if it's possible, how do you find yourself wasting it? Do you understand the depth of those two questions? Do you think it's possible to waste time with the picture of God's sovereignty? And if you do waste time, how do you waste it? The premise that Peter's saying is, is if you arm yourself with the same way of thinking as that of Christ, then the, the rest of your life is to live for God's will and not for your own human passions. Time is a funny thing, isn't it? Such a funny thing. Because our life is, in some ways, guided by it. We know in a few minutes here, it'll be this amount of time. We have to be here at this time, and we have an appointment tomorrow at this time, and tomorrow the alarm's going to wake us up because we've got to get to work. Everything is driven by time, and yet if there was a meter above each one of our heads calculating the distance between now and the end of our time in the flesh, it would make things really interesting, wouldn't it? Isn't there a movie like that? I need to write one, right? Like I, th- I thought today, I was like, isn't that a movie where there's a meter over everyone's head? I think that's a commercial or something. Is it a commercial? Yeah, these guys are with me. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Due to convenience, how much of your life would you say that you've wasted? Well, you've just been living life, and because this thing over here was quick and easily accessible, you grabbed it knowing full well the obedient way was going to be rough, take longer, and way farther in the distance, and the reward didn't see as high. And so you, you just grabbed this. What happens when you arm yourself with the same way of Christ, listen, is you see every minute. You're like, Mark, how is this possible? Seriously. How is it possible to live every minute strategically. Well, first of all, I, I really believe that we can take some massive strides. Is perfection in this area possible? No, but should, should we start striving for it? And the only possible way that I can see us striving towards a more strategic, arming ourselves with the same way of thinking of Christ is we keep coming back to the same answer is we just, we have to be hunkered in his word. The more that we commune with him, the more we're reminded of his goodness and his pursuits and his decisions and his life, and the more we're drawn to replicate. Right? My next question is this, what do you find humans passionate about? Okay? So we're to spend the rest of our days not guided by human passions, but rather for the will of God. What do you find that humans are passionate about? What are the passions of humans? If we were to make a general statement, I think we could agree, like self-gratifying pleasure, 
Is that, is that workable with you guys? Humans in general, prideful as they may be, passionate about selfish pleasure. Now you see the danger of convenience, don't you? Convenience is built on quick, gratifying pleasure. It's easier to go through the drive-thru. It's easier to... It's easier to order my groceries online. It's easier to do, it's, everything is easier. And most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, less intentional, less missional, and mostly less relational. To live life on mission, it's relationships. It's people. It's not you and your mirror. Preaching to yourself, even though I wouldn't necessarily not condone that. I think it's kind of fun and sometimes necessary, Right? But the ministry of Christ was around people. Have you noticed that? In his strategery, yes, he, rec- he reclused some time to the mountains to pray. We see it consistently through the Gospels. But he was always around people. Loving, encouraging, healing, teaching, guiding. To arm yourself with the same way of thinking of that as Christ, it's bring on the people. And there will be different levels, I understand. Some of you really struggle loving people. Some of you are a little bit more shy. Others of you aren't, okay, right? And that's okay, but it's finding our mission, understanding that it is around people, relinquishing the human passions, the self-gratifying pleasures, and resting in, what does he say? The will of God. The will of God is an interesting phrase. It only appears 17 times in your scripture, all interestingly enough in the New Testament. Probably one of my favorites is in one that we studied in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, that says this, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the question that you should be asking is, what's the will of God, right? And this is what most people ask me all the time. How do I know God's will? How do I discern God's will? How do I, how do I know what God wants from me? I want to talk about God's will in two different ways. The first way is this, his written will. What's God's will? Here it is. His written will. Okay? Uh, the, uh, the scripture talks about itself, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts, convicts. It's living and active. This is his written will. Okay? It's faithful. It's trusting. You want to know the will of God? This is a great place to start. You want to arm yourself with the same way of thinking, just like uh, Jesus did when he defends uh, himself against Satan and his temptation? Guess what he does? He quotes the scriptures. The written will of God. So now, arming ourselves with the same way of thinking of Christ, it's the will of God. Here it is. No more for the human self-gratifying desires and pleasures. The second way his will manifests itself is what we'll call the revealed will. Now, the revealed will works coincidingly with the Word, but it happens because Scripture says that whenever we begin relationship with Jesus, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit now, resides in us. So we're like, what kind of church is this, right? No, this is, this is the biblical understanding, is that Christ leaves, sends the helper, the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit resides in followers of Jesus. 
And so the revealed will of God is how the Spirit prompts us, guides us, convicts us, draws us, opens our eyes. Never, never negating or going against the Word. You understand? This is where a lot of Christians uh, become heretical. As they say, oh, the Spirit's guiding me to do this, but it's not biblical. These two will always work hand in hand. Are you with me, church? The Spirit will never guide you to do something that the Word doesn't say, and vice versa. So if you're like, well, man, I I don't know if God's calling me to do that. Well, maybe you should check that. Well, but it doesn't say I should take the job at, you know, XYZ in here. No, but there may be some principles from the Scripture that apply to your situation. But you won't know that until you're in it. So many Christians complain about not knowing what the will of God is, and yet they're not reading the Scripture. And I wholeheartedly believe that all that comes out of a love of God first and not discipline's sake. The more we love, the more we long, the more we read. The will of God. Jesus strategically, every day, putting himself, listen, putting himself in a position to obey. Can I ask you this? How have you put yourself today in a better position to obey? You're like, well, well, Mark, what do you mean? All right, let's go there. Uh, when you get in your car, okay, and, you know, I'm not, this, we're not going to go secular versus Christian now all the way. But I'm saying, and I've, you know, ha- I've had my tuner to 107.7 at times. As I'm listening to some of these songs, the question that I have to ask myself at every situation It's just, am I putting myself in a position to better obey right now? See what I'm saying? So I get in my car, and whatever. um, The new Miley song comes on. And it's just like, it's a song that just is, you know, just seduction, and it just feeds on all this stuff. Am I putting myself in a position to obey right there? in a better position to obey. I'm not saying that you can't flee and run, but have I put myself in the best position to obey? Some of the things you watch, some of the places you go, mostly some of the conversations you have. How have you better put yourself in a place to be obedient today? It's strategic living. Now Jesus, being fully God and fully man, knew that he could put himself in just about every situation. But there's times in the scriptures where the Pharisees ask the disciples a question, and guess what happens? Jesus answers for them. Why? Because he he wants to put them in a better place to obey. And right now, he could probably see they're going to get a little bit angry. So hey, simmer down. Let's work through this. How have you put yourself, and how will you put yourself in a better place to obey? Verse 3, he describes some of these human passions. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. Which is interesting because most of you think that like that's not in the scriptures. It just talks about drunkenness. Drinking parties, well ahead of its time here, right? And the lawless idolatry. Can I ask you this? Why would you, and, and wrestle with this question, why would you as a believer ever give in to one of those? 
Why would you? Why have you? How could you ever, with the power of Christ, the grace of the cross, the love of God, how could you, how could I ever fall for the trap of the temporal wickedness of human pleasure? It's convenient. You know, it presents itself. And because we haven't positioned our heart, living strategically in such a way that would already have calculated the decision, we put ourselves in a place where sin becomes convenient. Right? You're typing on the computer. And the classic, oh, well, something popped up. Yeah, come on, seriously. Right? You put yourself on the computer. You're alone. It becomes convenient. And you indulge. You go to a particular party where you know this particular group's going to be there, where you know it's going to be easier to succumb because you know that you desire acceptance from this particular group more than others. And so there you are. And guess what? The pleasures, the temporal gratification of the flesh becomes convenient. And because that's where our flesh will turn, we oftentimes will indulge. Why? Because that's who we are. Outside of Christ, we are a bunch of convenient, self-gratifying beasts. But through Christ, because of Christ, with the example of Christ, we, church, have the opportunity to arm ourselves with strategic missional living where every decision, every life example, every league, listen, every league your kids play in. Can I tell you my idea real quick? I was telling Matt and Jeff this. I'm going to have two boys. They're going to be six and seven. I've looked into baseball leagues around this area, basketball leagues. You know what? You know what the leagues mostly consist of? Uh, we're going to practice four days a week when they're six. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know? And I'm competitive as a college football player. All right, all those things. I love competition. Okay, we're going to practice four days a week. It's going to be like six hours in the batting. I'm like, seriously? So here's what I started thinking. Is there something that I could do that would be more missional? So I'm going to start my own league. Two teams, one out of the week. You practice for an hour, you play for an hour. And you know what? I'm going to make it free. So some of the folks we've been loving on and we love St. Charles can be a part of it. Yeah, it's going to be in a little bit of time. But that's how you start thinking through life. Do I have to just succumb to culture? Because I have to put my kids in a league, and I have to do this. And this is, the, this is the class I have to take, even though I'll never be able to go to church. All these things. You start seeing how your life and flesh just give in to convenience so quickly, when if you just took a step back, you could see how a little bit more strategery. And oftentimes, and I'll, I'll close with this, oftentimes what begins strategic quickly gets lazy, doesn't it? You had good intentions. You had a pure motive initially. We did this to be on mission. But then it's been a long day, hasn't it? You're tired. Kids are crying. Got a bad grade. Dude broke up with you, whatever it is. And then what started out strategic, what became convenient, was loathing, pity. No more sacrifice. No more selfless living. Just the convenience of self-gratification. 
What Peter says is this, is suffering will come through obedience. Because when you obey, and when you don't give in to the convenience of culture, culture will see it as strange. And that's where he goes in verse 4 and where we'll pick up next week. But the thing I want to encourage each of you with this tonight, I would imagine that there is some desperate life restructuring that needs to happen. Think about everything you do during the day. Who you talk to, who you call, who you text, what conversations you're getting in, where you buy all of your clothes, all of those things. And if you want to arm yourself with the same way of Christ, all of those things start becoming strategic. Even when you go to the mall to buy that candle from Bath and whatever, right? You know that when you walk in that store, you have a tremendous opportunity to get involved in conversation and to, the, and to reveal the love of Christ. Can we agree? The love of Christ can and should be spread at any and every given point. Can we agree with that? If that's true, if it really is to be lived on mission in every circumstance, in all circumstances, then can we agree that true followers of Jesus will follow Christ by seeing life as a complete mission? Not just the people on a bulletin board, but you. You're the missionary living in your job, in your school, at your time, right now. And so you know what? We celebrate your obedience. Not just selling everything and going to Thailand. It's you right now, but it's us together ridding ourselves of convenience. And I'm not saying that some things are, that we never partake. I'm not saying every time you go to McDonald's, you have to go in the store. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying when you pull up alongside and you see the girl who's sitting there, could you take a second, a selfless second, and spread a tad bit of joy? Could you do that? What happens is it just comes out naturally. And what you have to start thinking through all of the time, pretty soon, it's just, this is just, I'm just a missionary all the time. That's my life. With my family, with my kids, with my wife, with my work, with everything. I am just a missionary all the time. And so the rest of my days, everything I do, wasted time what? Every second for the glory of Christ because of the will of God. So what I ask you to do right now is to think through your life and your schedule. And what are some things right now that you're holding on to in the name of convenience that aren't relational and that are providing you no opportunity to truly reveal and show the love of Christ? What needs to change tonight from your schedule so that you could be a missionary? And then what Peter says is the suffering will come, and that's been the point of his whole letter. You obey, and you will suffer for the glory of Christ. Let's pray together. God, I just confess my own struggles with being consistent. 
And I pray, God, that tonight isn't a motivational speech for me and for my friends. But God, I pray that you would do a work by the prodding of your spirit in our hearts that would cause us to yearn to rid of cultural convenience so that we truly could live on purpose with pure motives, accomplishing the goal of finishing this race on this earth well. God, right now as my friends wrestle with their own schedules and their own rhythms, I pray that you'll reveal holes and gaps. I pray, God, that the house they live in, the dorm that they reside in, the friends that they have, the places that they put themselves, I pray, God, that you'll awaken an awareness in them that would cause every step, every word, everything heard that you would just begin to draw their hearts towards complete and consistent missional life. Here we are, broken vessels, desiring to be used by you, God. Church, let's stand and sing this song as a prayer.